as we come together to focus on the Word of God and what God has provided for us today as we study the Word and this final verse in this very important section and passage in Ephesians chapter 2, let's first go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance and direction upon our study in God's Word today. Our Father, we are so thankful for all that you have given us, all that you provided for us. And as we examine this chapter, we are brought face to face with the essence of the gospel, that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, but you intervened, you in your grace and from the foundation of your love, demonstrated that love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you made us alive together in Christ, and you raised us and seated us together with him in the heavenlies. And this, by grace through faith salvation, is free to us. There is no cost involved. We do no works to earn it. We do not merit it. It's impossible for us to merit it, for it is, as the text says, a free gift. Now, Father, as we come to this last verse, which emphasizes for us that though we do nothing to earn or to deserve our salvation, it is not based on our good works, but it is designed to produce in us good works. We are saved for that purpose, to live in light of all that you have done for us as we walk with you in these good works. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the Scripture as we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is justified by faith and not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As we prepare to study this morning, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The verse that we have come to in our study is, as I said a moment ago, the last verse in this tremendous paragraph in Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most significant paragraphs for helping us understand the significance of our salvation, but especially this salvation that is in this church age. While those who have believed in Christ throughout the dispensations from creation to the day of Pentecost with the birth of the church were regenerated, they were saved, they're justified, they're reconciled. 
They have eternal life and will spend eternity with the Lord. There's something distinctive, something unique. There are aspects of our salvation that are especially designed for church-age believers. And I believe it is this epistle that more than any other book of the New Testament tells us about the uniqueness, the distinctiveness, and the glory of what God has provided for us, church-age believers, that we are to be the bride of Christ. We're also called the body of Christ. We are raised to a level that no other group of believers, no other people of God in the Scripture uh, has risen to, all because of the grace of God. And as we come to the last verse in this section, it tells us about God's goal for us and his purpose for us in saving us and giving us all that he has given us. He has made us alive together in Christ. He has raised us. He has seated us together in him. Now, why has he done this? And all of this is due to his grace. Well, it is explained in verse 10 where we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As I was studying this passage, I looked at five different Greek texts as well as a number of English translations, and all of them recognized that this is an independent sentence. It is stating the conclusion and the purpose for the salvation that is talked about in the previous nine verses. And so it is, it is set apart, and so we should analyze it that way. As we look at this, we should recognize a few things about it. First of all, the verse begins with the English word for, which most of the time when you're looking at your English text is a translation of a Greek word that indicates that it is stating the cause or the reason for something that has already been stated. It indicates a further explanation or further clarification of something that that has already been said. And so this helps us to understand a little bit more about what has been said in verses 8 and 9. It says something further, gives more explanation, gives more clarification. In verses 8 and 9, we read uh, what I've just uh, recited earlier, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. So someone may conclude that, well, works are of no value at all. But what we learn in verse 10, by contrast, as it explains it, that we're his, his workmanship, and we're created for the purpose of good works, not by good works, but for good works. Verse 8 also began with this same word, this same idea of explanation. So verses 8 and 9 further explained verses 1 through 7 going back actually to pick up a statement from verse 5 that for by grace you have been saved through faith Ephesians 2:10 by way of a second basic observation is a contrast with verses 8 and 9 which states that uh, our salvation is not from works 
But now we're told that our salvation is for the purpose of good works here in verse verse 10. And then third, 2.10 moves us from the focus on our phase one justification salvation to our phase two sanctification salvation. Remember, the Bible speaks about three phases, three stages. I've even seen somebody write about the three tenses of salvation. The first phase, it takes place in an instant in time when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. We talked about this in the previous two lessons when we focused on what does it mean to believe? What is faith? What is saving faith? And I pointed out that there are some people who teach that saving faith is a different kind of faith, and I do not believe that's what the Bible teaches. And I spent some time going through these explanations and also took us through uh, some of the explanations that are outlined at, in Gordon Clark's book, Faith and Saving Faith, which is a small book. Uh, I always hesitate to recommend some things. I'm not recommending it. I'm just stating it. The first part of it is an outstanding analysis of the word in the in the Greek for faith and the concept of faith and what that means. When he gets into some of his conclusions, I'm not so sure that he's he's on target there. But what's interesting about him is he demonstrates that the popular understanding of faith that is taught in the Reformed circles, in Reformed theology, uh, are illogical and do not hold up to a solid uh, logical analysis. And this is from a man who himself is a very well-known Reformed theologian. So he demonstrates that there's a fallacy there and that faith means to uh, to agree that something is true. Now, a lot of people have problems with that. They say, oh, that's just intellectual assent. And he raises the issue, well, if it is not intellectual assent, with what do you believe? Don't you believe with your mind? Well, that makes it intellectual. And it is a set because you are agreeing, you are saying that it is true. Ah, but what is the it? The it is the salvific proposition, that which we must believe to be saved. The salvific proposition gets muddled a lot today. There are those who say, well, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. There's no verse that says that. You need to commit your life to Jesus. There's no verse in the Bible that says we need to commit our life to Jesus. The word faith does not mean commit. The word faith means to trust and to rely upon something, to believe something to be true. What is it that we are to believe to be true? Well, Scripture says that Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins. And that we are to believe that. We believe that Jesus died for, and fill in the blank with your name, your sins. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins when I was about six and a half years old back in 1959. And I trusted in Christ as my Savior. But there are some people who get these things muddled up and they say, well, I believe the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus died for my sins. That's not the same thing as saying, I believe Jesus died for my sins. 
I, I, I can believe that that Charles Darwin taught that human beings evolved from monkeys and from, from apes. But that doesn't mean I believe that human beings evolved from monkeys and from apes. So there's a difference there. Uh, you can believe a historical fact, and but that's not the salvific proposition. That's not the statement in Scripture that one must believe. One must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him and him alone, you have eternal life. And what are you believing? You're believing that Christ died on the cross for your sins. So we study this in detail in the last two lessons. And it's interesting because I received an email from somebody un, who has just been listening to lessons online for a short time and had not listened to those lessons. And he was asking me various questions about faith, all of which were answered there. So there are people out there that even though some of those questions may not have occurred to you. There are people out there who are young believers who are struggling and saying, is that faith enough? Is it enough just to have a small amount of faith? Is it a problem if I doubt uh, my salvation at times? Uh, what kind of faith do I have to have? Is it faith? Is it the faith that saves me or is it the faith in Christ that saves me? Is it the object of my faith? And these were the questions that he was spelling out. And he was somewhat uncertain, so I had him uh, listen to those last two lessons that we covered at the end of February and early March. And he replied and sent in a nice email thanking me for clearing up all the answers to his questions. So this is important to help people understand the certainty of their salvation and have confidence that even when they doubt, even when they question, that nevertheless that that Christ has paid the penalty uh, for all of our sins. That is what 2, 8, and 9 talks about, that phase one instant of trusting Christ as Savior. But after that, we have to grow as believers. At the instant that we trust in Christ, we are made alive uh, together with him, that's what we studied in verse uh, verse 5, that he, God made us alive together with Christ. That's known as regeneration. But having been born, there has to be growth. Following uh, birth, there has to be nourishment. We are to desire the sincere milk of the word. Peter tells us that we may grow by it. It is the word that nourishes us. But there are some people who never get the word. And so they don't grow. Other people come along and say, oh, well, you didn't show any fruit. That's such a superficial view of God's wonderful plan of salvation and his grace. For God, uh, God recognizes that there are those who are going to be saved, but they are not ever going to take advantage of growth. As it were, they are going to be born alive, born again, and yet they will not grow because they never study the word or they get distracted, something of that nature. But growth it should follow. That doesn't mean it automatically will follow someone's uh, salvation. And verse 10 tells us this, that we are to go beyond just simply getting saved to grow and mature because God's purpose is for us to have uh, good works, and that our lives should reflect those good works, which is what verse 10 talks about. 
So let's just review the first part of this chapter, what we've already gone over. It's been six weeks since we last studied this, so we need to be reminded of the flow of what's going on here and then wrap it up with with verse 10 before we go forward into the next section of the epistle. So we saw that there are five basic questions that are answered in this section. First of all, what's the problem that we all have? And part of this problem, uh, aside from our sin, is understanding some of the grammar here and the language in this section where you have a second-person plural pronoun, you, in the English, but it should be you all or y'all, as we say in the South. And the second problem is the we. Who are the y'all? Who are the you? And to whom does the we or the us or the our refer? Second, what's the solution to the problem? The problem is spiritual death. The solution is what God does. But God, in Ephesians 2, 4, made us alive together, raised us, and seated us together. Third, what does it mean to be saved? What exactly does it mean to be saved? A lot of people are confused about that term. And as I pointed out in the Old Testament, a lot of times the word time, the word saved doesn't refer to justification or regeneration. It refers to just deliverance from a physical, uh, uh, being physically in danger or physical problem or even a disease being healed. And so we need to, we looked at that in Ephesians 2 5 and Ephesians 2 8. Fourth question, what is the purpose for being made alive, raised, and seated? And we did a lengthy study going back into key Old Testament passages to understand what happened when Jesus ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father. What is its purpose? Because we are raised and seated together uh, with Him. Then we looked at the definition of the gift of God, the problem there in Ephesians 2.8. And then sixth, we looked, we will look today at uh, who is God's masterpiece in 2.10. So I just want to take a minute. The text may be a little small for you, but uh, this is a way to get all of these verses up on the screen so we can see how this one long sentence connects together. As I've uh, indicated in verse 1, I've taken the phrase, He made alive, and put it in brackets and italicized it. If you're using a King James or even a New King James Version, that will be how it is in the text. It's italicized because it's not in the original there. This is an awkward sentence to translate into, into English, because the subject of the sentence does not appear until verse 4. The grammatical subject is God. And then the verbs that go with the subject, the actions that God takes, are found in verses 5 and 6. And so this is a long, long sentence. And yet it is a very important sentence to understand. The next sentence is 2, 8, and 9, and then the third sentence of the paragraph is verse 10. So we have one sentence talking about everything that God did for us. Then in the middle of that, the writer interrupts himself in verse 5 and says, For by grace you have been saved. 
And then he comes back and explains what that means in verses 8 and 9, and then in verse 10 takes us to the next step, which is that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's important for us to understand this phrase, in Christ Jesus, that runs through this section. That has to do with our new legal standing as believers in Christ, our position in Christ. What is ours in terms of our eternal relationship in Christ, which is different from our day-to-day walk, our day-to-day experience, and what may or may not transpire in our Christian life. We have to understand who we are in Christ. We look at the framework for Ephesians. As we, as I titled the book, it is about the wealth that we have in Christ. All that is ours at the instant of salvation because we are in Christ, our legal standing, our position. And this is described in chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 and 5 talk about the walk of the believer. I'll say more about that a little later on. And then the last part of chapter 6 focuses from 610 on focuses on the warfare. So we have the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the believer. In the core of this opening sentence, we read that the subject is God and that what he did for us was to make us alive together, to raise us up together, and to make us sit together in Christ. That is the focal point of this whole chapter, what God has done for us. The same thing is true in chapter 10. We are his workmanship. Actually, in that verse, his is the very first word uh, in the verse that emphasizes that it's all God's work and it is not uh, not our work. Now, when we look at verse verses 4 through 6, we see that three things are mentioned, that he made us alive together, raised us up together, made us sit together. But after he mentions the first one, he interrupts himself and says, for by grace you have been saved. So that seems to relate specifically to the first part that he says in terms of being made alive together. And we'll see the significance of that is that being made alive together contextually means to be saved. That's very important to understand what is meant when we get into uh, verse 8, when it starts off talking about, for by grace you have been saved. Just exactly how does that relate? We'll get to that in a minute. So what's the problem? The problem, as we see in verse 1, is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But we have to also understand the problem for these uh, pronouns. Notice at the beginning, it's a reference to you all, to the those to whom Paul is writing. And he says, and y'all who were dead in trespasses and sins. So he's referring to his Gentile readers, and he's saying that you all were dead. When were they dead in their trespasses and sins? It's not physical death. It is a different kind of death. It is a spiritual death that is defined as separation from God. It is not does not mean a total inability. It means that they are separated from God if we look at it uh, contextually, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But notice, he's talking to his Greek uh, recipients. He says, y'all were dead in trespasses and sins, in what y'all 
and in which y'all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Then in verse 3, he shifts to a a first-person plural, among whom also we all. What's the difference between the plural y'all and the we? And there are those who say, well, the only difference is he's talking about the Ephesian believers with the second-person plural with the you, and the we refers to Paul and to the apostles. But that doesn't satisfy what is said in the in the uh, epistle itself. We have to discover what that uh, we and you relate to. Again, we see this is important because in verses 8 and 9, he uses the pronoun you all, for by grace you all have been saved through faith. And then in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship. So we have to understand uh, who that we describes. Now, there are many who believe that this we and you does not always refer to a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That is the most common view. And I have shown many times as we've gone through this that that doesn't work because when you look at Ephesians 1.12, at the very beginning, Paul says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The first group to trust in Christ were the Jews. So we refers to Jewish background believers as they were the first chronologically to trust in Christ. And so the early church from Ephesians, I mean from Acts 2 through Acts 9 is exclusively made up of, of Jewish background believers. And then God revealed to Peter that he should take the gospel to the Gentiles, take the gospel to Cornelius a centurion, and he had a number of others who were proselytes uh, to Judaism who were with him, and so he goes to the Gentiles, takes the gospel to them, and this is when you see the Gentiles now included equally in this new thing that God is doing, equally included uh, in the church. So it makes sense all the way through here that the we and the you must refer to a Jew and Gentile distinction. When you get to 2.11, we'll get there next week, this reads, Therefore, remember that you all, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. And then he says that at the time you all were without Christ... And then in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, y'all who were once far off. And then he concludes this in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now my point is this, from 2.11 on, it is very clear that the you refers to you Gentiles and the we refers to us Jews, primarily saved Jews is the main idea. And that there's no change, though. There's no sudden information in the text that's telling you that the we and the you met one thing at the beginning, and now it means something else. So what we see consistently through this section 
is the emphasis on these two distinct groups. The we or the us or the our talks about these Jewish background believers who believed in Christ from the day of Pentecost forward, and they are, uh, they are believers. Sometimes it refers to Jewish and Gentile believers together in Christ when we get towards the, uh, uh, get towards, uh, Ephesians 2 5, 2 6, and 2 10. The we is going to refer now to what has been brought together. For example, when it talks about we are made alive together, it's talking about we, Jew and Gentile. That's the focal point where chapter 2 is going, is this new group, this new entity, this body of Christ. Ephesians is about the church, this new entity that God has brought into creation in this church age. And when we don't have this distinction down correctly, then somehow it dilutes the significance of his focus on the glories of this new uh, creation in this church age. So the plural we can refer to Jewish background believers only, and in some places it refers to Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. The second person plural, you or y'all, refers to Gentiles. In a couple of places, it refers to them prior to their salvation, so it refers to these Gentiles as unbelievers. But in most places, it's referring to you, Gentile believers, now. So that's what we see at the at the very beginning, that the problem, the basic problem he talks about, is a problem of spiritual death. This spiritual death is going to be defined for us when we get into uh, Ephesians chapter 4, that this is talking about being alienated from God, that we need to have a different life from the way we were when we were first born and we were alienated from God. It doesn't mean that we just had no life and that we couldn't do anything. It means we're just separated from God. So Paul defines for us spiritual death. And so the solution is life. But God made us alive together. That's the first thing. We were dead, i.e. alienated from God, and now there's a transformation so we're no longer alienated from God. And then the third question we looked at is the question... Um, what does it mean to be saved? What exactly does that mean when the text talks about the fact that we are now saved? And we have to understand this uh, contextually, understand it contextually. So first we look at Ephesians 2.5, where it says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together, And then it says, by grace you have been saved. I've colored those phrases. And then in Ephesians 2.8 it says, for by grace you have been saved. So when we were dead, we were made alive together. And this is defined through this appositional phrase, you have been saved. So saved here is a broader word that specifically refers to being made alive together. Therefore, when we get down to verse 8 which picks up on that phrase, for by grace you have been saved, 
then we know that he's talking about being made alive together. So when we read uh, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved. Being saved equals being made alive together. And so we could also read it contextually, for by grace you have been regenerated, you have been made alive together. And this regeneration is not something you could bring about on your own, that it is the gift of God. So down below I've written that made alive together from verse 5 is a synonym for being saved in the last part of verse 5, and that is the same thing as regeneration or being born again. And so, for by grace you have been born again, for by grace you have been regenerated, for by grace you have been made alive together, for by grace you have been saved. That is the focal point and the summary of what he is talking about. And then, the fourth question that is answered is, what's the purpose for this being made alive, raised, and seated together in Christ, in Ephesians 2, 7? And it is so that God can make trophies of us, of his grace, that we are trophies of grace, and that that we will be on display for all of eternity so that people can see how magnificent and how marvelous and how wonderful his grace is. And then we come to a section where there's a bit of a problem, and that is understanding what this phrase means, that it's a gift of God. What exactly is the gift of God? If you look at Ephesians uh, 2, uh, 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, what is the that? That is not of yourselves. It, that, the that is the gift of God. Is the gift of God grace? Is the gift of God salvation? Is the gift of God faith? We studied this quite a bit, and I pointed out as we went through this that the gift is not grace, it's not faith, it's not salvation. It is all of it. It is a by grace, through faith, salvation. And as a result of analyzing the text, we have seen that because this is through faith, faith must precede salvation. There are those that say that first you're regenerate. But you see, regenerate is what saved means in this context. So you can't be regenerate before you're saved because you're saved through faith. Faith has to come first and then salvation. Faith comes first and then uh, re regeneration. Let's see how that works grammatically. It is the Greek preposition dia plus the word pesteos, and pesteos is in the genitive case. Now, I know this, uh, you may not be able to track with all of this because of the grammar, but you can use the preposition dia with either a genitive case or an accusative case. If you use it with an accusative case, it would mean because of faith. If you use it that way, then faith becomes the cause or the meritorious basis for faith. If you put it that way, then this means that, that it is the kind of faith that you have. 
Uh, this was pointed out to me by a rather strong uh, Calvinist uh, professor I had uh, in my first year of theology at, at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Bloom, who had pastored a church, a Presbyterian church here in Houston uh, back in the late 60s. And he pointed this out. He said, this shows without a doubt that faith has to be non-meritorious because it's through faith, treating faith as a means and not treating faith as the cause. If faith is the cause, then it's the kind of faith. If it's a means, then the object of faith is what has all of the merit. So I designed this little diagram here. Over here we have a poor guy who is alienated from God. He is without life and he is uh, thirsty. He does not have the water of life. And so over here he comes to the faith pipeline because the water must flow, the water of life must flow through faith. And so he must turn the valve. This is his will. He has volition. He turns the valve and the water will flow through it. Does the water flow through the faith before he has life? Or must he be given life before the water flows through the faith? It is very clear from the grammar that when something is through something else, then the whatever is through something precedes. Somebody asks me, says, where's the restroom? And I say, it's through that door first door on the right. That means you have to go through the door before you can come to your destination. If salvation is the destination, you have to first go through faith before you get to the destination. So this makes it very clear grammatically that regeneration, that salvation does not precede faith But faith comes first, and faith is the belief, the trust, and the saving proposition of Scripture that Christ is the Messiah, he died on the cross for our sins, and then when we believe him, just a mustard seed of faith, then we have eternal life. We are transformed by God at that instant. We're made alive together in Christ. We are raised. We are seated together with him in the heavenlies, And if we were to lose our salvation, God would have to reverse all of that. And that is so absurd, you can't even imagine. And people who believe, well, you can lose your salvation and get it back, well, first of all, that would violate Hebrews 6. That's where they usually go. And Hebrews 6 says it's impossible to renew such a person who's lost it if they get it again. That's not what it's talking about, but that's how they interpret it. So Hebrews 6 would only give you one shot. Uh, But that's not grace. That's just legalism. Grace is that God gives you life, and it transforms you so dramatically and places you in Christ in this incredible new, with this incredible new identity, as we'll see in our passage, this new creation in Christ, that it's an irreversible transaction. So what we saw in that verse was that being saved is the same as regeneration or being born again. Being saved is the same as being made alive together. We looked at what the pronoun or the relative pronoun that relates to. It's not faith. That refers to, uh, it can't refer to faith because faith is a, a feminine noun. 
It can't refer to grace because grace is a feminine noun. It can't refer to salvation because that is a masculine noun and the, that, the relative pronoun, is a neuter. And so when you have a pronoun that's a neuter, it must refer to a neuter noun. So grace and faith are excluded because they're feminine nouns. Saved is a masculine participle. Now in Greek, we studied this, in Greek, neuter relatives, neuter demonstrative pronouns are used to refer to phrases, clauses, and sentences or entire works of literature. So when you have a phrase, by grace through faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, the relative pronoun that must describe the entire phrase. So this would be translated, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that by grace through faith salvation is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is Christ is the object of faith. Faith is non-meritorious. If faith were meritorious, it would be because of faith, and we would have to be given the right kind of faith. But faith here is 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 not in, in the accusative case. It is the means, and so it is when we turn that volition valve, the water of life flows through, and God is the one who makes us alive. God is the one who regenerates us. God is the one who identifies us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and puts us in union with him. Through Scripture, we are always given the option to believe or not. As Jesus is talking uh, to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes shall never die. Do you believe this? He specifically addresses her. She has to decide, does she believe it? Does she agree that that is true? Or is she going to disagree and say, no, that's not true, I don't believe it? John twenty thirty one. But these, what are the these? These are the signs, the miracles that are pointed out by John in Jesus' life. There are seven great signs in the Gospel of John, and the eighth and greatest sign is his resurrection, which we looked at last Sunday morning on Resurrection Day. These signs are written that you might believe. Over 95 times, John uses the verb pestuo, the verb for believe, and he never qualifies it. There's no adverb with it. He doesn't say you need to sincerely believe. You need to genuinely believe. You need to truly believe. He never says that because in life we either believe it, we accept something is true, or we don't. We either agree or disagree. We either assent to it. It's truth that Christ died for me or we reject it. That is the gospel, that if we believe Christ died for us, put your name in that blank, if Christ died for you, then you have eternal life. We might, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that brings us to the end of, the chap, of this section and answers the question, who is God's masterpiece here in 2.10? We need to address this. In Ephesians 2.10, we read, For we are his workmanship. Now, 
We're going to have to answer some questions here as we go through this. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, that is the good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what does this mean? We have to note several things about this passage. To whom does the we refer? Earlier I said the we in most of its uses in the first chapter and most of the verses we've seen up to this point, it describes we Jews who first trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. But starting in verse 4 and 5 and 6, the we begins to describe the Jew and the Gentile who are now together in Christ made alive together, raised, and seated together in Christ. So here, it's not just talking about what the Jew who first came to Christ had, but now it's talking about we, Jew and Gentile. Verses 8 and 9 said, For you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And now it shifts and says, for we are his workmanship. The second question is to address the significance of this word workmanship. What does that mean? Workmanship is not a user-friendly term in our society. What exactly is he talking about when he is saying that we are his Uh, workmanship Uh, and then he goes on to say created in Christ Jesus for good work so the workmanship relates to being created and what does it mean that we're created in Christ why is that significant that we are created in Christ Jesus and what does he mean by good works and then we look at the last part what is the significance of what he says there that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does it mean when he says that we should walk in them? So we'll begin with looking at the opening for we, the four, as I've already pointed out. The four tells us that this is a further explanation of what has already been said. The four further clarifies and explains verses 8 and 9, this uh, by grace through faith Uh, salvation. In the context, we saw that saved means to be made alive again, and it refers to regeneration, and that regeneration is by faith alone. It is through faith or by faith. This is parallel to what Paul says about justification in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And there he goes back to an incident in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where God, or Moses, tells us about Abraham's faith and how Abraham became justified. In Romans 4, 1, we read, Paul saying, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, and he is talking to Jewish background believers, he refers to Abraham as their genetic father, but he would also include Gentile believers because in Galatians he demonstrates that we are also of Abraham's seed because we have believed the promise of God. So he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, 
he has something to boast about. What did Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? That salvation's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there he's saying that being saved, that is regeneration, is not on the basis of works, so we can't boast. That's the same thing that that Paul is saying in Romans 4.2, that justification can't be on the basis of our good works, uh, because then we would boast about it. But if it's based on faith in God's promise, then we have nothing to boast about. And so he quotes from Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, without getting off out into the weeds too much, when it states this in context, it's not talking about the immediate promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, 1 through 5. I believe the the verb tense there in the Hebrew is telling us, remember, Abraham had already believed, had already trusted in God. What did he trust in? He trusted in the early gospel message from Genesis 3.15 and on that God would send the seed of the woman to destroy the seed of the serpent. And he had believed that long before God called him from Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 12.1 through 3. So how was Abram justified? He was justified by trusting in God's promise of a future salvation. And so this is the same issue. Works are excluded. Faith is the means by which God's salvation promise is appropriated to the individual. And so we're reminded that that this phrase always describes, uh, when it's talking about the y'all, that this describes those Gentile uh, believers. And Ephesians 2.12 and 2.13 talks about this, uses that word very distinctively in that manner. And so when he says this in Ephesians 2.10, he's concluding this section, for we both Jew and Gentile are his workmanship. Now this is an interesting word here, translated workmanship. This brings in the idea looking at God as a craftsman, And you've heard me teach this before, that when God is uh, creating Adam in Genesis chapter 2, we have this picture of a potter, we have a picture of a craftsman, an artist, that he is uh, spitting, as it were, into the soil, and he's mixing it around in the soil, and he is shaping and forming something, uses one of the creation words that's used there is a word that's used for a potter shaping the clay. And so we see God pictured as an artist, as a craftsman, and that's exactly what this uh, Greek word portrays. It is the Greek word poiema, and it has the idea of basically something that is made. What's interesting, you can look at the English poiema. If you take the I out and drop the A, what's left? poem, something that is crafted, something that is artistic. And so many people believe that that this is the word from which we get our English word poem. This word poema 
was used in classical literature as the for the work of a craftsman. It's used in one instant in Herodotus as crafting and designing a crown for a ruler. So it is not just producing something that's of an everyday uh, type of uh, type of production, but something that is artistic and something that is valuable and something that is beautiful. It's used 29 times in the Septuagint to translate uh, various uh, words in the Hebrew. And the main idea that comes across is that this is talking about the creation of something of great value, the creation of something that is a masterpiece. It is only used two times in the New Testament, and in both instances here and in Romans 1.20, it is it, it portrays the creative action of God. Now, because God is perfect, that which he creates is going to be perfect. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be the most beautiful uh, artistic uh, design that he can, he can come up with. And so it's an absolute masterpiece. And for that reason, there are some translations that translate this verse for we are his masterpiece. We are his work of art. We as church age believers are God's masterpiece. We as church age believers are a work of art. It elevates us to the highest value uh, of expression for anyone who is a believer in all of the Bible. Church age believers are a work of art. And so it it raises the question whether the we here is talking about we, the body of Christ, or we as individuals in the body of Christ. And I think that it emphasizes both, because when we look at how the word we is used in the uh, first ten verses of this chapter, it's focusing as we as individuals. But the we as individuals in those ten verses... And in the next five or six verses, it's talking about how we are brought together in Christ. And even in this verse, those who are his masterpiece are created in Christ Jesus. So it's emphasizing the value of church-age believers that is beyond anything that we can imagine. The language here elevates us to this this special creation of God. And so... It, it is tied immediately to this next word, created in Christ Jesus, which is the verb on the upper right. Uh, it's, a, it's a participle, and it means to create or to build, and it's related to the noun katissis. So the verb is katizo, the noun is katissis. And this, uh, pl- these two words are used to describe this new creation in this church age. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Well, how do you get in Christ? By believing the gospel. If you believe in Christ in this dispensation, you are in Christ, and you are a new creation. That's the noun, katissus. You are a new creation. And God only creates that which is beautiful, that which is artistic, and that which has the highest value. And he goes on to say, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Then in Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 15, 
Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, again it's talking about our position in Christ, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And here he uses that word katissis again. So it relates to our new legal identification with Christ, it is referred to in theology as posi- our position in Christ or our uh, uh, positional truth, as it were. That's another term that has been used, and it refers to the legal standing in Christ. It's not talking about our experience. And in Ephesians, we'll come across this. In Ephesians 4.24, we read, and that you put on the new man. See, that's experiential. They already We already are created in Christ, but in the second half of the epistle, it talks about what we should do because of our wealth. And what we should do is put on the new man. So it clearly indicates that just because we are in Christ doesn't mean we're necessarily going to grow and mature and walk in good works. That's what the second half of the epistle is about. If it was automatic, we wouldn't have these exhortations and these injunctions. So what we're seeing here is that the statement of our one of these blessings that we have in heaven is that we're now in Christ and we are a new creation in Christ. We are a masterpiece in Christ. So let's look at this and just chart it out very rapidly. You've seen this many times. That on the left side, we will chart our eternal realities. We come to Christ. We trust in him as our Savior And we have two areas that apply from Scripture. One is our eternal reality, our position in Christ, our legal standing in Christ. And the other is our temporal reality, our day-to-day experience, our day-to-day walk. So we're just going to focus initially on the fact that we are placed in Christ. This is, as I said, positional truth. We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and so we are entered into him. We are now transformed legally and positionally into the kingdom of light. We are sons of light, Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 5, therefore walk as children of light. We have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. We have been regenerated, made alive together in him. We have been adopted into God's royal family. We are a new creature or new creation in Christ. We are freed from the power of sin. That's Romans 6, 3 through 6. We still have a sin nature, but the sin nature is no longer the tyrant. We have new life in him. We're no longer alienated from God, but we are in right relationship with God. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When we look at this phrase, in Christ, it's used 164 times by the Apostle Paul. It describes our new identity in Christ, that we are united together with him, and it is unique to the church age believer. Colossians 2.3 says, In whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.7 says that we are to be rooted and built up in him. And in Colossians 2.10 that we are complete in him. And in Colossians 2.11, we have been, uh, we have been spiritually circumcised, which means we are cleansed positionally 
from all sin. That is who we are in Christ. But the temporal reality is we're to walk a certain way. That's what the end of of uh, Ephesians 2.10 talks about, that we are to walk in these good works. We are to do this by walking by the Spirit, and we are filled with the Word by the Holy Spirit. So these good works are developed. This idea of good works is uh, that which pleases God, which is produced by God the Holy Spirit. It's not morality. Anybody can be moral. There are a lot of pagans who are very, very moral. I know unbelievers who are very religious and are very moral, have high ethical standards, are very honest, they're good husbands, they're good fathers, but they do not have new life. They are still spiritually dead. So good works is not talking about just being moral. It's talking about something supernatural that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that not only is this done by the walk by the Spirit, but it is from the Word of God. For 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so we're to walk in these good works. So that presupposes that we're studying the Word of God that transforms us. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 states, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. These good works are produced by God in us, not by our own efforts. Titus 3.1, addressed to a pastor, remind them, just as I am reminding you now, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So these good works God prepared beforehand, part of his plan from eternity past, that we should walk in them. This is the Greek word paripateo, which is the word to walk. And so you have it used two times in this chapter. It brackets it. It's what's called in literature an incipio. We have at the very beginning of the chapter, Ephesians 2.2, that you once formerly walked. How did they walk as unbelievers? According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Before we were saved, we lived a certain kind of lifestyle. We thought a certain way. We acted a certain way. We had a certain set of standards and values. But when we come to the end of this section in verse 10, we are now a new creation in Christ. We are created in Christ for the purpose of good works, uh, that we should walk in them, not walk like we walked before. That's going to be the thrust of how this word is used in the remainder of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4 and 5, we have six different uses of the word peripateo. We're to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. We should no longer walk, in Ephesians 4.17, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Uh, Ephesians 5.2, we're to walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And Ephesians 5.8, we're to walk as children of light. So this sets us up to go into this next section in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, which focuses on what God did in tearing down the barrier. There are two barriers. 
There's a barrier of the law between Jew and Gentile, and there's another barrier that separates Jew and Gentile from God. God in Christ destroyed the barrier so that now the two, Jew and Gentile, are made one in Christ, and he has made peace between them and the Father so that we have salvation. All of this relates to the unique distinctives of church-age believers and why we are above and beyond anything that was ever imagined for the spiritual life and our relationship with God in the Old Testament. So we'll come back next time and begin to work our through our way through this next uh, very important section, verses 11 to 22. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of all that you've provided for us as church-age believers. It, it boggles our mind to think about the wealth of resources, the wealth of blessing that you have given us and that we need to live in light of. And Father, we pray for any who might be listening to this lesson today or uh, some future time through the Internet, that if they have never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would do that now. For the days are growing short. We never know how much longer we may have to live. We never know how much longer it might be until Jesus returns that we can't put off till tomorrow uh, these important decisions. For we know that Christ died for our sins. Make this clear to those who are listening. And that by believing in him, we have eternal life. And that there is no other way. There's no way we can work our way to heaven. There's no way that we can be good enough. There's no way that we can have a religious works, the works of righteousness. As Paul says, it's not by tzedakah, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Father, make these things clear to the uh, unbeliever who listens, that they might trust in Christ as Savior. And Father, for us who are believers, that we might live and walk in light of all that you have done and that we might walk in these good works that are described in the remainder of Ephesians, all of these wonderful things that were taught, that we might live accordingly because that's what it means to live according to uh, these works you've prepared. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.